I promised you last week, my message finished last week with a, a little review of how the seven letters in the beginning of the book of Revelation have application to today. And um, several people said, hey, could you print those out so we could have them? So they're available on the back table back there. If you wanted to grab one of those, you can get it before you go today, okay? So you're welcome. Our privilege to do that. Um, as I continue to prepare and study each week for this series of messages that we're doing on the Revelation, the Lord continues to remind me and impress on my heart, can't see the big picture in this and help the church see the big picture of this book. Yeah, of course, there's, there's hidden meaning. This is an apocalyptic book, okay? There's cryptic language in what's written. Written. But it's not a puzzle to solve. We're not trying to figure out the timeline in this thing, okay? The Lord keeps impressing me that this is so much more like a picture that's being painted. And when an artist paints a picture, they paint all over the canvas at different times. You've got to see how it all comes together. That's really the point of this. And you have to realize that there's a lot going on at the same time in this book. It's not sequential, and it's not A follows B follows C follows D. The scene shifts back and forth and forth and back, and the same thing happens in terms of the time that's being expressed. This is a non-sequential book. So as the scenes continue to shift, and as the time sequence seems to be very fluid... I want to just real quickly give you a big picture review of where we've been so far because it sets the stage for for where we're heading. So in the book of the Revelation, so far, the the structure of the book, chapter 1 was the vision that John had of the risen Christ on the Isle of Patmos. Chapters 2 and 3 were the message to the seven churches. That's an earth perspective of what's going on, what was going on then and what goes on now, how those books, those letters apply to us today. Then the, sh- the scene shifts. Chapters 4 and 5 are a vision John has from the throne of God, the throne room of God. The Spirit called John up. Come up here. I'm going to show you what's going to take place. Then chapter 6, it's all about the seven seals that were broken. It's a view back to what's happening here on earth. Chapter 7, the picture again in heaven of the 144,000 and the great multitude, so big it couldn't even be numbered. And then the last couple of weeks we've camped out in chapters 8 and 9, the six trumpets as they were played and what followed them, the, the things that happened then here on the earth. The six trumpets were broken into two stages. There were the first four, the series of the first four, the calamities that came upon the earth and really impacted and affected mankind. But then the the next two were much more severe in nature. They were demonically inspired, and they literally came to torment and to kill many of the dwellers upon the earth. And if you remember, that term, wherever it shows up in the book of the Revelation, is talking about the unsaved, the unrighteous, the unredeemed, the rebellious, the wicked, uh, whatever other word you want to use for them. It's something that was assigned specifically to them. They, They were the ones who did not bear the seal of God upon their foreheads, it says. Well, chapter number 10 is another break in the action, okay? After all of this increased calamity and chaos, the the pain and the destruction that comes to the earth in chapters 8 and 9 that we've been studying for the past couple weeks, I'm ready for another break. It's like, oh, that's so intense. And, And John, okay, actually the Lord, through John, gives us another one of those. 
chapter 10 and most of chapter 11, most scholars refer to as an interlude, okay? It's uh, a break in the action, not a pause in the story by any means, but, but rather it's a shift in the scene. And it's a focus upon some very, very important things that are just around the corner, that are coming as we continue this study. So this interlude goes from chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 15. At 11.15, that's where the the seventh trumpet sounds, and things unfold from there. We're going to divide this interlude into two weeks, okay? There's just way too much to do in one week, and it doesn't have a good mid-break, So today we're going to do chapter 10. It's a little shorter in what we cover. And then next week we'll do chapter 11 because chapter 10 sets the stage for, and I'm not exaggerating, for one of the most amazing confrontations that will ever take place on planet earth. Okay. You don't want to miss next week because it's, it's an amazing story, but let's get back to the story. Um, As we have done every week, I'm going to ask you to stand as we have the Word of God read to us. Steph Hewitson is going to be our reader today. You know, Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed are those who read this book, who hear this book, and who heed this book, who obey what it says. So, even if you don't get anything out of the message, but I think you will, just hearing the Word of God today is intended to bless your hearts, okay? Revelation chapter 10. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken... I was about to write and heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. And there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, and he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again, speaking with me, and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You can have a seat. I Give me this for just a second. I love the fact that we are a multi-generational church. Do you love that? I do. Nancy Croft read first service and Nancy's about my age. And Nancy came up here and said, I've printed this out in large print so I could read it. Steph comes up and reads it on her iPhone. Don't you love it? I mean, that's just the beauty of a church that's multi-generational. Thank you, ma'am. That's great. How many vote for big print? (laughs) Okay. So here we go. 
Now, that was no reference to the Budweiser dog from the Super Bowl commercials, but I want to dive in together. Okay, some of you are like, what? Some of you got that one. Good. So let's read back through the passage and I'll make some comments as we go. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. It seems as if John's vantage point has shifted. Chapters 8 and 9, as he describes the six trumpets, it's as if he was um, looking from heaven as what was happening down on the earth, kind of a top-down view. This chapter seems more like he's back here on earth and he's watching this stuff kind of bottom up, coming down from heaven. I think the reason is... We're going to see here in this chapter, and especially the next chapter, John's back on earth because he has a very hands-on role to play in what's about to unfold here on planet earth. This is the second time that John mentions or refers to a, a strong angel. Chapter 5, verse 2 was the first time that he did that. I think it's another archangel, personally, my opinion is... Um, Because these strong angels always play a really key and significant role in what God is about to do. So I think it's an archangel. I know some scholars look at the language and says, you know, that sounds a lot like the description in chapter 1 of of the risen Christ, of of the Lord Jesus. But it's not him, okay? This is an angel, not the Lord Jesus. However, it's a mighty angel, Because he's got important work to do. It's a strategic mission, a key to the unfolding of the plan of God happening right here and right now. Part of why they they liken it to the picture of Christ is the, the allusion to the rainbow and to the pillar of fire. But I think that's there for, again, a very specific reason. Whenever you see a rainbow in scripture, it's symbolic of God's mercy. Whenever you see a pillar of fire, it's a picture of judgment. And so this strong archangel is coming to bring a mixed message of mercy and judgment. But I also think that there's another not-so-subtle reference here that is being made by this pillar of fire. Do you remember the story of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and their journey through the wilderness into the promised land? What were they led by at night? A pillar of fire. And I think the illusion here is... Church, children of Israel who know the Messiah, you too are on a journey out of slavery, bondage, etc. Maybe you're in the wilderness, but you're heading towards a promised land. And that's us. That's our story as well. So throughout this book, you see these little subtle references that aren't so subtle when you really understand what's, what's going on. Chapter 11, by the way, is the story of Israel's deliverance in our modern times and in the future. So that pillar of fire is a key word. This, this little book, this, this small scroll, is not the same word that was used back in chapters 5 through 7. Remember when the lamb had the, the scroll that had the seven seals? That was a picture of the, in the history of mankind. And as that seventh seal was broken, the history of mankind unfolded with specific emphasis towards those last days as to how this was all going to play out according to the plan of God. Well, that scroll, the Lamb's scroll in the Greek is the word biblion. When we get here to chapter number 10, this small scroll, this little scroll, this little book in verse number 2 is the is a I always have trouble with this. Biblaridicom. Biblaridicom. 
Okay, it's a whole different Greek word because it's a whole different kind of scroll or little book. This one isn't sealed, it's open, and it's a personal message to John. All right? It's private. It's personal. Most likely, I think, it's a word of, with some instruction, but it's also a word of encouragement, personal encouragement. Because John was about ready to do something that was pretty tough to do. Have you ever had those times in your life where God calls you to something and it's as if the Holy Spirit pulls you aside and says, you can do this. I'm going to help you, but I need you to do this for me. You ever have one of those? I think this is similar to that, okay? It's, it's a message just for him to give him encouragement and strength. This scroll is the same type of scroll that was given to Ezekiel back in the book of Ezekiel with the same kind of instruction as to what he was supposed to do with it. Let's go there just for a quick minute, okay? In Ezekiel chapter 2, this is verse 9, and it goes through chapter 3, verse 3. Now, it's not a huge portion of scripture, but listen to what this says. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Can you see a lot of similarities there to what we just read in chapter 10? Um, It's not the same scroll that John received, but it's the same type of scroll. Uh, We don't know if John's contained lamentations and mourning and woe. Although when we get to chapter 11 next week, you're going to see there's a sobering thing that's going on in that chapter. Uh, If it's not downright frightening, which in some ways it almost is. So maybe there's lamentation, mourning, and woe in John's also. We don't know that. But when he's told to eat, when they're both told to eat, it means receive this word from God. Receive this word of God. Take it into your innermost being, okay? Digest it. Let it become a part of you. Meditate on this. And I've told you before, the word meditate, sorry, it's the same word as what a cow does when it chews its cud. But that's what it is. Chew on this, John. Chew on it and swallow it. Let it become a part of you. And then, sorry, bring it back up and chew on it some more. Till you get this thing totally digested. Till it becomes a part of you. Now, sorry for the cow reference. But that's a good picture of what he was to do with this word. Let it just become a part of of who you are. It's as sweet as honey. We'll, We'll get to that when we get to the end of this chapter. But let's go back to the first two verses again. This strong angel is a big angel also. Do you know that uh, not all angels are created equally? There's not just one size of angels and they're just little cookie cutter angels. Angels are big. They're small because they have all kinds of different functions and different things that God calls them to do. Some are much bigger than others. This is a big one. I know that because his right foot is on the sea and his left foot is on the land. That doesn't just show us how big he is. I think that's also symbolic of the fact that he's covering the whole earth. And the message throughout this book from God in big ways and little ways and subtle ways and not so subtle ways is, I got it covered. Nothing surprises me. Nothing's outside of my knowledge or grasp of control. So we get a picture here of this big angel who's got one foot on land and one foot on sea to show us he's covering the earth. 
I also believe it's there intentionally in stark contrast to the enemy's work three chapters later. Let's, let's go there too for a quick second. This is Revelation chapter 13, the first two verses. And the dragon, that's the devil, stood on the sand of the seashore. So there's one on the land. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And there's description there of him. And the dragon gave, at the end of the verse, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Oftentimes Christians read this and go, oh no, this is terrible. Now, I'm not saying it's good or it's great, but I want to put this in perspective for you, okay? Chapter 10, verse 2 said that a strong angel had one foot on land, one foot on the sea. It's God has already got his team, his army in place, okay? He's got it covered. He is sovereign and he's in control. Yes, Pastor Kent, but that's just a strong angel. We're talking here about the devil and we're talking here about the Antichrist. So what? Remember, it's God. God is over all. And then down the chain of command are archangels, big angels, and the devil. He's just on parallel. Yeah, but what about the Antichrist? You know, there are some Christians who think Christ, Antichrist, equal tug of war. What? The Lord Jesus Christ is God. The Antichrist is a pawn, a puppet of Satan who is not God, who is down the food chain equal with an archangel. Who is the chess master of this grand chess game being played out? It's God, and he doesn't have an opponent. It's not God versus the devil in this thing. Is it? No. Now, there are vying forces and powers, no doubt about that. But it's not the devil on par with God and the Antichrist on par with Christ. There's no way that that's what's going on here. God is the ultimate chess master. He's moving all the pieces as this thing unfolds before us. So remember that, okay? But the devil's on the land and the beast is coming up out of the sea. God's already got a big angel in place to handle this. Okay. Verses 3 and 4. And he, that's the strong angel, and the strong angel cried out with a loud voice and when a as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. So this is like a lion roaring. It's not a lion roaring, but he's loud. He's very loud. And the revelation, this book is loaded with pictures and imagery that roars with God's sovereignty and God's control and God's perfect plan unfolding. These seven peals of thunder, many times in the Old Testament, when the thunder peals, it's the voice of God. They're synonymous. But here it says, their voices. It's plural. I think it's still God speaking, but I think it's a picture of the, the Trinity in perfect unity, saying it's happening just like we want it to happen. John, there's a unified voice speaking to you about what we're calling you to do and what's about to transpire. The instructions are very clear. 
Seal up the things that the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them down. John, this is a word for you. This is not part of what I want you to write down in the revelation. This is for you. You see that, folks, that's very similar to something that happened to the Apostle Paul. This isn't just, wow, where did that come from? There's, there's biblical precedence for this, okay? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is speaking a bit about himself and his own experience. And he says, boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. So I don't want to brag, but... I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, talking about himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body, I I don't know. The Lord knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. This is one of those come up here moments like the Apostle John had in chapter 4. Come up here. I've got to show you what's going to take place. But there are words spoken to him that are not intended to be written in the Revelation. It's a personal word to John. Folks, we need those. I am so thankful for the word of God. It's our compass. It's our guide. It's our plumb line. It's, It's what we need to live this life. But the Holy Spirit still speaks today. Not ever contrary to what this book says, but there are some things we need direction for in life that aren't in this book. I didn't marry my wife because I went to John 3, 18 and it said, Mary Jan, I heard the voice of the the Spirit of God. Confirm to me, speak to me, give me peace that that was my wife. Do you get what I'm saying? Don't ever minimize the voice of the Spirit that speaks to you. But sometimes when the Spirit speaks to you, you don't have to tell everybody what you heard. It's like Mary. She pondered those things and then treasured them in her heart. There's some things God will speak to you that isn't for everybody to know. It's for you to know and for you to hang on to because they're anchors at times for our faith. So whatever it was that was spoken to him, I think it was preparation and encouragement for what he was going to write, but he wasn't to write it as including it in the revelation. So he didn't. It's kind of like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the works of this law. There are things in this book that are for all of us. There are things God will speak personally, privately to us that we hang on to because they're for us. Okay, let's keep going. Chapter 10, verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. Does that leave anything out? No. That there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seven angels, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God is finished. And he preached, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. In other words, this angel makes a solemn vow and and basically says, in God's name and under his authority, and there is no higher authority anywhere, I swear, I promise you, there will be no more delay. The end. We're right here at the cusp of the end. Why has there been a delay? What what has caused this delay? Remember earlier when the souls under the altar were going, How long, O Lord? What's taken so long? 
What, what caused that delay? Personally, I think plain and simply, it's the heart of God. It's the mercy of God. The scripture says, let's put the next slide up. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a picture of the heart of God. When God said these next words to Micah, do justice, but love mercy. Justice is necessary, but mercy is the heart of God. And God calls him and us in that to exhibit his character. And then what I think is one of the greatest core pictures of the heart of God. Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Some versions say he's abounding in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. In other words, everything God does has been covered by his merciful heart. Are you glad for that? I am. That means I don't get what I deserve. You should be doing that too because I know you, okay? (laughs) But you see, now we're at the point in history... His story, really, for mankind, as this thing unfolds, we are at the point where God's compassionate, merciful heart can no longer hold out. Last chance, final warning has already been given. The sin and the wickedness and the rebellion of mankind, of those who dwell upon the earth, has tipped the scales once and for all. And it finally comes to the point where God can't do, well, God can do anything, but, but hear me. God can no longer do what he wants to do. He has to do what he has to do by the choices that the dwellers of the earth have made. At the end of that portion of scripture, it talks about the mystery of God being finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. This mystery of God The mystery of God is this. How could he ever put up with sinful, wicked, rebellious, disobedient mankind for so long? How could he do that and not exercise his holiness and his justice? How could he have waited so long? That's been a mystery. People don't get it. Nobody gets it. But God gets it. It talks here about this mystery that he preached to his servants, the prophets, that his prophets foretold of this day coming, the day of the Lord. And folks, when you read through the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the time when this is all said and done, when Jesus comes again, it doesn't all talk about Jesus coming again, but that day of the Lord, that day when justice is finally going to be poured out and executed. Folks, that's talked about in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Peter 3, and Jude chapter 1, verse 6. It's not a foreign concept to the word of God. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming. And church, at that moment, no one will be able to say, I didn't know. I never realized. I had no idea. Because in what we're reading here, God has extended mercy as long as he could. Probably longer than we would. But nobody's going to be without an excuse at this point in time. Because finally, God in in his justice can't take it any longer. 
And a summary, I think, a great summary picture of what this will entail is one little verse in Revelation 11. We'll talk more about it next week, but I just want to read it for you. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There's a day coming when God will judge the nations, those who dwell on the earth, and he will destroy those who destroy this earth, but he will save and reward his own. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Again, this message is against those who dwell on the earth. It's like honey. It's sweet from the perspective of it's God's word. And it ultimately is good news to God's people. God will avenge his people. But he's going to do it in perfect wisdom, perfect love, and perfect justice. But the bitterness, the bitterness that's talked about here is the fact that there is, there's no joy in proclaiming wrath and judgment. It's a hard word. It's always intended to be a hard word. That's, it's bitter because it's filled with woe and, and with mourning. And uh, don't get me wrong. At this point in the story, it is too late. The angel raises his right hand and says, it's, it's too late. It won't delay any longer. That scale is forever tipped. The sacrifice of Christ is no longer going to be applicable to the, those who dwell on this earth. It, it, it can no longer balance the books for them. Too late. Okay? But the reason why this word is, is bitter is because, I think we'll see this in, in Ezekiel, it, it's bitter because it reflects the heart of God that really is never going to change. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? The answer is no. Rather than that, they, that he should turn from his ways and live, that's God's heart. The next verse, also out of Ezekiel 18. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. You see, this is mournful because on the one hand, it's too late. But God doesn't think, oh, goody, 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 I'm finally going to get you. You see, I was thinking about this this morning. Yes, it's too late. But this is a vengeance born out of perfect love. And I don't get that. I'm either way on the vengeance side or way on the pitiful, wrong kind of love. Somehow, this is born out of, vengeance born out of perfect love. And they're just getting basically what they've asked for. Okay, let's finish this up quickly. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth, it was as sweet as honey. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You must prophesy again. Not, John, you've got to predict the future and tell everybody what's coming. There's also a sense of prophecy, which is preaching. John, you're going to have to go preach to the ungodly and tell them what awaits them because of the choices that they're, they're making. The judgment of God is coming. And that's the main message from here on until we get to the end. There's really good stuff. But especially chapters 16 through 18, the judgment against Babylon. That representation of the world system that, that has to be judged. 
I think that um, part of why John wasn't to record this part is God spoke to him more about what this prophecy was going to look like. And it's almost a pep talk. John, this is going to be hard. You're the disciple who Jesus loved. You're, you're a merciful man. This is going to be difficult for you. But we're almost to the end, John. We're almost there. Hang on. You can do this. Do you ever need one of those from God? I need them all the time. I think that's part of what goes on here. But folks, there's a tension here that we need to understand. Verse 6 said, there shall be delay no longer. I mean, that's it. End of story? No. Because we just read, you must prophesy again. And so what we have to understand here is, as we come to this watershed moment in the book, from here on, chapters 11 through 22, time is compressed. Things really start speeding up. It's like the movie goes into fast motion, okay? Lots of stuff are going to be happening in a very short period of time. How many of you feel like life is speeding up? It just gets faster every year. It's not literally happening, but it feels that way. This is what's going on here in this part of the book. You think life is speeding up? There's a sense in which it is. And from here on out, I mean, we're not even halfway through the book, but we're at a spot where, man, it's all going to come down in a big hurry. Okay? Time isn't the issue. Get that in your head. Time is not the issue. The consummation of God's perfect plan, perfectly timed and orchestrated, that's the issue. You see, because God's not interested in doing this quickly. God's interested in doing this correctly. And that's where, as his people, we have to kind of get that in our hearts. Church, at this point, though, in the Revelation, we sit on the threshold of the end. Now, I'm praying really hard that I can finish this series before Jesus comes again. And I think we're going to make it, okay? We sit on the threshold of the end. But at the same time, from this point forward, the story just gets more amazing. Uh, next week will blow your mind. Uh, when I first said that I was going to do this series, I don't know how many people come up to me and said, Oh, good, I can't wait to find out who are those two witnesses in chapter 11. I, got, I was so thankful people even knew there were two witnesses in chapter 11. But next week, I'm going to talk to you about the various theories, and I'm going to tell you what I think, what I believe about that. Chapter 11, you, you don't want to miss next week, okay? If you do, it's going to be online, so you can listen. But it's better live, I'm telling you. It's better live. So, I want to pray for you and uh, be done today. So, would you stand, please? And if you would, please, um, cup your hands in front of you. To me, that's always a kind of a symbol of, Lord, I, I want what you got for me. We're at a watershed point in this book, and I think the Lord has a couple things that he wants to do in you and for you and through you, okay? So I just want to pray a blessing over you today. Father, I just ask that your church, um, everyone here, everyone who listens online um, or who gets a, a CD, Lord, I just pray that there will be a personal readiness in all of us. As things escalate, Lord, uh, and get faster and crazier all around us, continue to prepare your bride for your return. Lord, we also want to lift up our friends and our family, our loved ones who are not ready and pray that you would continue to work in their hearts. Continue, Lord, to reign upon them. Continue to break the chains that hold them. Continue to do good in them to bring them to yourself. And the Lord, finally, kind of as a little plant and seed for next week, we pray for Israel. Next week, Lord, we're going to look specifically at 
a big part of your plan for your chosen people in the end times. We today want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem as your word instructs us. Father, it's not that you uh, don't love uh, the Arab world or the Muslim world. You do. Jesus, you died for them as well. But for some reason, you've got a special plan for Israel. And we just want to be, be on your side in that, Lord. Uh, frankly, I'm, I'm concerned with some of the decisions being made uh, that are not supportive, um, not just in America, but around the world. I, I see things building towards what chapter 11 talks about. And I just ask you to have mercy on us and turn us around. Help us line up with the things that you say are right and important, Lord. Help us be a people who love everybody, but are smart enough, wise enough to support those that you call us to stand alongside. That includes Israel. So help us. Lord, pour blessing out upon your church today. Help us not leave here uh, feeling heavy and burdened, thinking, oh no, it's just such a chaotic mess out there. But rather, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, when we see all these things kind of coming into play, Jesus said that we were to, to stand up straight and to look up because our redemption was drawing near. That's the spirit in which we want to live every day, Lord. And by your grace, we can do that. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.